Today we study a wonderful principle of prophecy, which is our key number five, called the sufferings and the glory. This involves getting the big picture of prophecy given to us in the Old Testament, and it involves seeing how the New Testament shows how it will all be fulfilled. There are two streams of messianic prophecy, for the coming Messiah is prophesied in two very different ways, his sufferings and his glory. And all the prophecies fit into one of these two categories. Some prophecies show that the Messiah coming in humility, suffering and dying for our sins as our Saviour, as in Isaiah 53. But other prophecies show him in his power and glory when he reigns as King of Kings. When a passage combines both these images, it's always the sufferings first and then the glory. So the prophets saw two aspects of the Messiah and his work, his sufferings as our Saviour and his glory as King that would follow his sufferings. These images are so different that many of the Jews believed that there would be two messiahs, one called the son of Joseph, the suffering messiah, and the other called the son of David, the kingly messiah. But the New Testament makes it clear that there is only one messiah, his name is Jesus, but he comes twice. The first time he came to be the suffering messiah, and the second time he will come again as the glorious king. This explains perfectly how these contrasting visions can both be true. Understanding this fundamental principle of prophecy will open the Bible to you in a new way, enabling you to put many pieces of messianic prophecy into their right place. These two aspects of Messiah's work are based on the two programs of God, his kingdom program and his salvation program. After the angelic rebellion, when Lucifer set up his counter-kingdom, God's original purpose for man, created in his image, was to establish his kingdom through man. So he gave dominion on earth to man, in Genesis 1.26. Man, under the authority of God, was to express God's kingdom. He was part of God's kingdom program. But man sinned and came under the dominion of darkness. And since then, there's been a war between God's kingdom and those in rebellion. Now, God is not a softy or a loser, so he's not abandoned his kingdom program. He will establish his kingdom. He will establish his rule over all, and he will put his enemies under his feet, all his enemies. We can see that in Psalm 8, which expresses God's unchanging kingdom program for man, even though it was written thousands of years after the fall, when man submitted his authority to Satan. Man is still called to rule and reign with God. Therefore, one of God's programs revealed in the Bible is his kingdom program, in which God's kingdom is advancing step by step through the ages. It will ultimately lead to the total subjection and destruction of all God's enemies. Now, God could have judged his enemies and destroyed the kingdom of darkness immediately. Why is he delayed? This is the big question, isn't it? Why does God allow evil to continue instead of judging it? The reason is that he also has a second program in operation, his salvation program, which needs significant time to be fulfilled. When man sinned, because of God's love for us, God introduced a, this second program to save us from our sin and rescue us from the, from the camp of the enemy. If God had moved immediately to re-establish his authority and crush all rebellion, all mankind, all of us, would have been destroyed because we were all part of that rebellion. So rather than destroying everything and starting again, he held back his kingdom program in order to bring his salvation program to fruition. 
So there are two programs of God working together. God purposed first to redeem man and save him from destruction, and then secondly, re-establish his kingdom on earth. God did not change his kingdom purpose, but he had to delay it in order to allow the outworking of his salvation program. These two programs determine God's action in history and his fulfillment of end-time prophecy. God is moving to establish his kingdom authority over all, putting all his enemies under his feet. But first, he must save as many as possible, or else all mankind would be destroyed as God's enemies. That's why Christ had to come first as the suffering Messiah, our Savior, to die for our sins, before he comes again in power and glory as the conquering King of Kings. Because when his kingdom program comes into full manifestation, it will be too late for the rebels. So he's giving as much chance as possible for people to receive his salvation before he fully asserts his kingdom. But his kingdom will come. So logic dictates the major principle of messianic prophecy, which Jesus himself stated when he rose from the dead, first the suffering, then the glory. First the Messiah will have to suffer and die, then he will come again to reign. This necessitates his resurrection from the dead. We are so aware of our need for salvation that we can easily assume that the whole Bible is about that, and so we miss God's kingdom program. Salvation is not the first thing, however. God's kingdom program came first, as it encompasses his original purpose for man. When sin came in, it disrupted all this. So this called forth the salvation program, which is designed to bring man into God's kingdom so he can fulfill his original purpose of ruling and reigning with God. Thus the big picture is that the kingdom program came first and the salvation program is a temporary addition aimed at saving as many as possible before God completes his kingdom purposes. So we need to expand our thinking because we tend to think of salvation as everything. But it's not. There's a bigger picture. God is establishing his kingdom overall, and a major purpose of God in salvation is to restore man to his original purpose in the kingdom program. When we talk about Jesus being both our Lord and our Savior, that reflects these two programs, and both go together. Man's fall, from which he needs saving, was a rejection of God's lordship over us. So salvation involves receiving a free pardon and bringing us back under his kingdom authority. So a man is saved when he believes that Jesus has risen from the dead, having accomplished our salvation, and that he confesses Jesus as his Lord. That's Romans 10.9. We enter the kingdom by being saved from our sins and by coming under his authority as Lord. Both programs center in the Messiah. This is seen in the very first prophecy of the Messiah that happened immediately after man's fall in Genesis 3.15. God spoke it to Satan, who was thinking he'd thwarted God's kingdom program, which included Satan's own destruction. Now that God's beloved man was under Satan's dominion, if God judged Satan, he would also have to be obliged to judge man with the same judgment. We see this in Matthew 25, 41, where Jesus says to unbelievers, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 
In Genesis 3.15, God immediately served notice on Satan that his kingdom program will still go ahead despite Adam's sin, for he will raise up the seed of the woman, a virgin-born man, uncontaminated from sin, free from Satan's dominion, who will crush Satan under his feet, and through his suffering, save mankind from the poison of sin. In other words, both kingdom and salvation purposes would be accomplished through this champion, Messiah. Let's read that. God says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. That's the Messiah, the seed of the woman. This is the first title for the Messiah, the seed of the woman, speaking of a virgin birth, indicating that he will be the son of God as well as the son of man. Genesis 3.15 continues, First, he will crush your head, Satan, and second, you will bruise him on the heel. First, the Messiah will crush the serpent's head. That's the kingdom aspect. This predicts he will destroy the devil and his authority and kingdom. Christ's death on the cross provided the basis for Satan's final destruction, which is yet to happen. Second, this predicts that in crushing the serpent's head, the Messiah would also suffer bruising in the heel through the serpent's bite. This was also fulfilled on the cross, where Christ bore a terrible assault of the forces of darkness and received into himself the poison of our sin, resulting in the curse of death. He did all this to redeem us from the penalty and power of sin and its curse, releasing us from Satan's dominion. In this way, he also fulfilled the salvation aspect. So on the cross, Jesus took the poison of our sin and suffered death. But at the same time, Jesus crushed Satan's head. In so doing, he took all Satan's authority from him, dethroning principalities and powers, so that a few days later he could declare, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. So, even though we focus mostly on the salvation aspect of the cross, yet also the kingdom program was greatly advanced, because he nullified the authority of Satan and his right to rule over man. The cross is just one phase in God's dealings with Satan. In fact, there are five falls of Satan because God's kingdom program progresses in stages. The first fall of Satan was when he initially rebelled. He was cast out of heaven down to the earth. And this is described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Jesus said about it in Luke 10:18, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Satan is now limited to the earth's atmosphere, so he's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. The second fall of Satan was at the cross, when Christ, the second Adam, dethroned him, destroying his authority over man. Colossians 2.15 says that when Christ had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through, through him or through his death and resurrection. He stripped Satan of his authority. So if we're in Christ, we are delivered from the dominion of darkness and Satan has no more authority over us. The third fall of Satan will be in the middle of the tribulation when he will be cast out of the first heaven, the atmosphere, to the earth's surface. This is in Revelation 12, 7 to 9. It says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down to, with him. 
they were thrown down to the earth's surface. Verse 12 adds, Woe to the earth, the earth's surface, and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And so clearly this happens in the tribulation, when he's only got a few years left. The fourth fall of Satan will be at the second coming of Christ, when he will be removed from the earth's surface and locked up in the pit, in the abyss, for a thousand years. Revelation 20, 1 to 3 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. The fifth and final fall of Satan is at the end of the thousand years when he will be thrown into the lake of fire and that's in Revelation 20.10. So Satan's on his way down. As God's kingdom program progresses, he subdues Satan in stages. Why not all at once? If he rushed to final judgment, judging all sin, then everyone would be destroyed and there would be no chance for God's salvation program to do its work. So God delays his judgments until salvation can be accomplished. This twofold work of the Messiah is typified by two sons, Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Solomon, the son of David. First, God announced that the Messiah would be the son or seed of Abraham. So it's appropriate that Abraham's son, Isaac, is a type of his greater son, Jesus. Isaac, being offered up as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, was a picture of the suffering Messiah, being offered up on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice for us. As the son of Abraham, the Messiah must be like Isaac, a willing sacrifice who would rise from death. Jesus is the greater than Isaac. Second, God also promised David that the Messiah would be his son and would reign forever on David's throne. So as the son of David, it's appropriate that David's son Solomon is a type of his greater son, Jesus. Solomon, in his glorious reign of peace and prosperity, is a picture of the Messiah reigning in glory. As the son of David, the Messiah must be like Solomon, a king who reigns in glory. And Jesus called himself the greater than Solomon. That's why the New Testament begins in Matthew 1.1 by saying and introducing Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. So Jesus is both the kingly Messiah and the suffering Messiah. He fulfills both roles, for he is the one who will bring both programs to their fulfillment. These two programs are also pictured by the Messiah being represented by two animals, the lion and the lamb. First, he's the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John proclaimed in John 1.29. This is a picture of him as the suffering Messiah, the Lamb of God, slain for us. Second, he's also the Lion of Judah, a picture of him as the kingly Messiah, for the Lion is the king of the beasts. Genesis 49, 8-10 compares Judah to a lion and prophesies the rulership will be given to Judah and that the Messiah King would come from Judah. So when in Revelation 5, 5, John was told, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he, it was speaking of him as the kingly Messiah, the son of David. Revelation 5 connects these two images in one person. For after John was told to look upon the line of Judah, in verse 5 he looked 
at the throne to see this lion, but instead in verse 6 he saw a lamb that had been slain. So the lion and the lamb are the same person. The kingly Messiah is the same as the suffering Messiah, and his name is Jesus. In fact, it was because he suffered as a lamb that he is worthy of all kingly glory and authority. As the famous passage in Philippians 2 points out, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. By dying for our sins, he proved himself worthy to rule over us as the King of Kings. So Revelation 5.12 says, And they sing in heaven, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, kingly power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Again, we see the messianic principle of first the suffering, then the glory. Before the lion destroys the kingdom of darkness in his wrath, the, la the lamb had to lay down his life and suffer the fires of judgment to rescue us sinners. Jesus had to die first for our salvation as the lamb before he comes as the lion in power and glory to establish his kingdom and reign. In other words, the cross must come before the crown. This twofold program of the Messiah was also manifested through two covenants, both of which were developments of the foundational Abrahamic covenant. First, God promised Abraham a seed who would bless all nations with salvation. This is the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. This promise was fulfilled through the new covenant in Christ, which provided salvation, regeneration, every spiritual blessing. This required the sacrifice of the Lamb of God to take away our sins. To prepare the way for this, God gave Israel the temporary Old Covenant of Moses, which revealed their sin and their need of salvation and showed, through the sacrificial system, how salvation would be provided. However, the Old Covenant, with its animal blood, could never provide salvation itself. It was given to prepare the way for the New Covenant in the blood of Christ. Therefore, the prophets pointed forward to the one who would come to save his people from their sin through establishing the new covenant in his own blood. Secondly, God also promised Abraham numerous descendants, forming a great nation. This was further developed through the Davidic covenant, in which God promised King David a throne and dynasty, and that one of his sons would be a king with an everlasting kingdom. This is talking about the Messiah, the son of David, who would rule the nations with a rod of iron from David's throne in Jerusalem. This covenant guaranteed that the Messiah will reign as king on the earth forever. Thus the Messiah fulfilled the two programs of God by fulfilling these two covenants. First as the Lamb, he established the new covenant through his blood. Second as the Lion of Judah, he will fulfill the Davidic covenant when he returns to reign. Christ's work on the cross was essential to establishing his kingdom on earth, for the new covenant is the spiritual foundation for the messianic kingdom. Thus Christ first had to come to suffer for our salvation as the Lamb, before he comes to establish his kingdom and reign in power and glory as the Lion. So there are two streams of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, the sufferings and the glory, corresponding to God's two programs which gave two very different pictures of the Messiah. First, the Messiah would come as a suffering servant, a priestly Messiah, who would offer himself to die for our sins as the sacrificial Lamb of God, before being raised from the dead and exalted as Lord. And that's all described in Isaiah 53. In this way, he would establish a new covenant for our salvation. This is his suffering. 
Second, the Messiah would also come as conquering king and reign from David's throne. This is his glory. How both sets of prophecies are fulfilled is made clear in the New Testament. Jesus came the first time as the sacrificial lamb, and he will come again as the lion king. A careful reading of the messianic prophecies makes it clear that the Messiah would first have to be born and enter into his ministry of suffering, and then later he would enter his glory as king of, on the earth. This is exactly the point that Jesus made in his first Bible study after his resurrection in Luke 24, 25-27. He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to first suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself, because he's the Messiah, in all the scriptures. He's claiming to be both the suffering and the glorious Messiah. But he points out that it was necessary for him first to suffer before being glorified. The Jews of Jesus' time did not realize this, so they misunderstood the purpose of his coming. They saw their need for a deliverer from the Romans, but not for a savior from their own sin. They weren't interested in a humble, suffering Messiah. They wanted the kingly Messiah to throw out the Romans, so they didn't believe in all that the prophets revealed. For while they looked for Messiah's glory, they overlooked the prophecies of him coming first as a suffering servant. They only focused on the prophecies they wanted to hear, so they overlooked the passages about the suffering Saviour. Being under Roman oppression, we can understand uh, that they were looking for a conquering king, the son of David, to come and defeat the Romans and make them a mighty nation, rather than the one who would save them from their sins. One problem was the Jewish leaders didn't realize they needed to be saved from sin. In their self-righteousness, they believed that their keeping of the law meant that they were already ready for the messianic kingdom, not realizing that they needed to repent and receive the saving ministry of Jesus and the new covenant in order to be prepared to receive the kingdom. Had he come the first time as king and judge without first obtaining our salvation, all men would have been destroyed, Jews as well as Gentiles. So first he had to come to save men from sin as the suffering savior by establishing the new covenant in his blood and only then could he establish his kingdom because as the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant this messianic kingdom will be a spiritual kingdom based on Israel and the new covenant. Only when Israel accepts the new covenant in Christ can God set up this messianic kingdom on the earth. Jesus rebuked them for not believing all that the prophets had spoken, both the suffering and the glory of the Messiah. The Jewish error was to ignore the suffering and only believe in the glory. But many Christians make the opposite mistake. They accept and they like Jesus as the suffering savior, but they don't believe he'll come as the king to, to judge and destroy the wicked uh, and to literally reign over the earth. But Jesus will do that very thing at the Battle of Armageddon. To understand what the prophets saw, imagine looking at two mountains in the distance, one in front of the other. As they looked forward in time through the Spirit, they saw two mountain peaks. But when you look at the two mountains, one behind the other, from your perspective, you can't tell if it's one mountain or two. 
they may seem to be two parts of the same mountain. But as you climb to the top of the first one, you may be surprised to discover a whole valley in between, and the second mountain far away in the distance. Likewise, the prophets saw the first coming of the Messiah, suffering as the Lamb of God. They also saw beyond that, to another mountain further in the distance, when he comes in power as the Lion of Judah, which is his second coming. But what they couldn't see is the valley in between. We are now living in that valley. We can look back and we see Jesus suffering in his first coming. And we can look forward to his second coming in glory. And we can now see that the valley is about 2,000 years long. But the prophets didn't see that. So often they talk about the Messiah's suffering. And then immediately in the next verse, the prophecy jumps over 2,000 years to the Messiah coming as the conquering king. Because the prophets did not see the valley in between. This is exactly what 1 Peter 1, 10-11 says. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. The prophets, you see, saw the new covenant blessings of grace that the Messiah would procure in his first coming through his suffering. 1 Peter 1.11 goes on to say that these prophets were seeking to know what time or kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted, first, the sufferings of Christ and, second, the glories to follow. This is saying that the prophets saw the sufferings of Christ in his first coming and his glories that would come afterwards at his second coming, but they did not know about the time in between. They could not see the time, that's the valley, in between the two comings of Christ that we now know as the church age. Although they searched, it was a mystery to them as they could not know what time would pass between these two comings, that is how long this time period would be, whether days, years, centuries or millennia. Neither did they know what kind of time it would be, that is what God had planned for that time for the church and the church age was not revealed to them for it was a mystery. So what the prophets saw was like looking at two mountain peaks in the distance. They saw the first coming of Christ as the suffering saviour and his second coming as the conquering king. But they could not see the valley in between that we now know as the church age. So as they described what they saw, their prophecies often suddenly jumped 2,000 years across this gap. For example, Isaiah 9.6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this speaks primarily of his first coming. But then the prophecy jumps 2,000 years, so that the next verse describes the kingdom he'll establish at his second coming. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. Therefore, from the Old Testament prophets, we have this order of events. First, the first coming of Christ, when he establishes the new covenant in his blood, that's his sufferings. Second, a mystery time, that valley in between that we now know as the church age. Third, the second coming of Christ, when he establishes his messianic kingdom on earth, and that's his glory.